Hi, Grit. Hi, Anand. How are you? I'm good. It's very nice to see you today. Nice to see you too. So today my guest is Grit van den Berge. She's a full professor in the Department of Computer Science at KU Leuven in Belgium. She's currently a member of a research unit called NUMA, that is Numerical Analysis and Applied Mathematics, and leads the Coast Research Group located at KU Leuven, Ghent. Her fundamental research activities involve mathematical modeling and the development of intelligent search algorithms such as heuristics and decomposition methods for different combinatorial optimization problems. She has successfully developed many heuristic decomposition algorithms, smart ways of tightening objectives or relaxing constraints, heuristics based on lower and upper bounding, and general purpose local search operators. These new algorithmic components have helped achieve the best computational results in several international competitions and benchmarking challenges. Hred also has a fast experience on scheduling problems and particularly on developing a general model for personnel rostering that would be applicable across a wide range of healthcare organizations. She's an author of many papers published in prestigious international journals like Transportation Science, Omega, Journal of Scheduling, EJR, and so on. So, Grit, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much uh, for accepting the invitation. Thank you for the invitation. Um, it was nice to meet you in November, wasn't it? Yes, uh, yes, for yes. For the first time. Yeah. It was really nice to meet you. Uh, campus was closed at that time when you tried to organize a meeting. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed the guided tour, the guided tour at night. Absolutely, it was fantastic. We also had a very nice uh, dinner, and I mean, it was it was great. Uh, so, Hred, uh, let's start. Uh, did I pronounce your name properly, or did I mess up? You pronounced it unbelievably well compared to many other people. Uh, you did very well. Yeah. So, could you please uh, say it yourself so it becomes clear? Ah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a bit difficult because the way I pronounce my name is not the way people in Flanders would pronounce it. I come from the West, where we have difficulty pronouncing the first letter of my name. So my parents and I would say Grit, whereas in Flanders, people would say Grit, which is a bit difficult for me. <laughs> okay. But you did well. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> So, uh, are you originally from Ghent or Ghent, uh, depending on uh, English or yeah. Flemish, yeah? or do you come from someplace else in, in Belgium? Uh, I was born in uh, in West Flanders, in the west of uh, Flanders, uh, in a little place called Anzehem. I grew up in Anzehem, um, mm -hmm. and uh, how far is from Ghent? The the, the place? Oh, uh, 35, 40 kilometers, uh, not much more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and tell me about your family background. Ah, I um, I grew up um, in a nice and warm family. I have uh, one sister and two brothers. I'm the eldest, and uh, then comes my sister and then my brothers. It was uh, really nice uh, back then, but we, we grew up in a small village. So compared to what uh, my children experience now, uh, while living in a relatively large city for uh, for Belgium, at least, uh, 
there was not really much to do in uh, in the village I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my um, my father uh, worked in a bank. Uh, he was um, leading a, a bank office with a, a few people. Although I'm sure he would have preferred preferred to do work outside uh, in in nature. Uh, um, but when when my parents had uh, a few children, I thought my mother found it too dangerous to to do other work than uh, than office work, and uh, uh, so my father worked there very near uh, our house. And my mother was a housewife; she stayed home to look after the children. Mm-hmm. It seems that she came from a family of musicians, right? Uh, music. Well, <laughs> uh, the. The musical talent definitely comes from my mother's side. It skipped me. It's more or less skipped my generation. Um, and uh, there are a few musician in, musicians in the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so my mother liked music. Um, I tried to study some music, but we didn't really... We didn't have an opportunity to learn to play an instru- instrument uh, in the village. So only doing scores was a bit boring so mm-hmm. I, I regret now that I stopped um, but my children play music yeah. uh, I know your, your son plays a saxophone right yeah he plays a saxophone mm-hmm. indeed and a bit of guitar uh-huh. and my daughter plays the clarinet ah very very nice yeah. uh, so did any of your siblings also become a scholar uh, yes, uh, my eldest brother um, also he did a PhD and he now also works at Keulöven in the ah. medical faculty. Ah. So he's uh, he's not a medical doctor, but he's a an, an engineer, bioengineer we call it, um, with uh, uh, who, who took some additional uh, courses in um, biomedical engineering, and so he became a professor later on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you were born in the late 60s, uh, so mm-hmm. what did you do to make yourself busy during your teenage years, uh, you know, the, in the late 70s, all the way to the mid 80s? Okay, well, as, a, as a child, I guess I read all the time. I guess I, I, I read the entire life of Anselheim until I was old enough to, uh, uh, to, uh, to take the bike to Wareham, which had a larger library so i yeah i i remember me reading more or less all the time we didn't we didn't really watch television at home uh not too often at least so uh reading and i i also really enjoyed the the movement of youngsters in the village so it's not scouting i guess you won't know the name it's called hero um the the movement uh, i joined and uh, i i think i really spent a lot of my teenage time uh, there till yeah till I I, uh, I went to the university I, so we used to come back home every weekend even as university students with a bag full of dirty laundry and uh, to eat whatever uh, mom had prepared but then I guess I I spent almost every weekend at this hero place so ah. it was really nice very i have very nice memories of it yeah so what activities uh took place uh in this movement um officially i guess it's playing with <laughs> friends uh <laughs> um 
but th the games were quite organized. We had things like dropping and uh, some games which required a bit of fantasy and in which everybody had a role. We um, we we enjoyed um, playing some theater things for for the parents, um, but that was only once a year. But we spent so much time on uh, knitting costumes and preparing. Uh, the place. Um, so you're yeah. more into backstage rather than acting. Oh, absolutely. I was the one doing the costumes and not acting. My sister was on stage. I wasn't. Uh, yeah, 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 most certainly. Mm -hmm. So were you a shy kid? Yes, I was a very shy kid. Ah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what about school? Yeah. Uh, did you study with boys or and girls or only girls? Yeah, it's it's almost hard to believe, but up until I went to university, so at the age of 18, we had always been separated apart from um, from kindergarten. Kindergarten was mixed boys and girls, but then primary school, six years of primary school, six years of secondary school was uh, split. I think in almost uh, in most schools, it was the case. Strange to think about it now because I don't think it exists anymore in this country. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, were there any differences between the way classes were taught for boys and girls? I think so. I really think so. Yes. Um, yeah. So, for example, in secondary school, we had to learn how to do knitting and all kinds of not needlework, but things which most girls hated really hated uh, my brothers didn't have to do it i didn't hate it by the way but these were not nice classes uh, and i think the boys learned much more about history and politics and so on than we did it was maybe not part of the program but i think that some of their teachers uh, were different i, I don't know uh, I believe there was a difference. Maybe it was due to the school I attended, but mm -hmm. I believe there was a difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. Also in terms of um, sciences, so my brothers learned many more sciences and much more about sciences in secondary school than I did. Um, oh. That's what I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. But were you a but good student? I was considered a good student, yes. In, in, in primary and secondary school I was. Uh, it was shocking for me to go to university and to see how all these people knew so much more than I did. Uh, but, uh, up until the age of 18. Um, mm -hmm. uh, which university degree uh, did you choose and was it easy to get a position? Um, well, I, I choose um, the subject of engineering it's now called engineering science um, um, I don't even think we had an English name for it back then and uh, it was one of the only subjects for which it was required to do an entrance exam I'm sure for some um, some for some artistic things like theater or music or so it was also required but among the sciences or humanities or medical um, sciences this was the only subject which required to do this it has changed now uh, mm -hmm. 
that in the old days we had to take an entrance exam, one week of pure maths exam, mm-hmm. one week of maths exams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but did you uh, pass in your first attempt, or it took mm-hmm. more? No, I, I, yeah, I failed in my first attempt, and uh, it, it was really embarrassing. I wasn't aware of the fact that you could properly prepare for these exams. Um, so, um, yeah, so I went to a girls' school, so. We, we learned, we went to theatre together, we had many classes about um, uh, art and uh, not doing art, but learning about art was really interesting. Uh, but I never had any maths teacher who told me, shouldn't you look at the exams of previous years to see, to see if you understand everything. So I, I was, yeah, I was really um, shocked by the difficulty of the, these exams. And I failed on one subject dramatically. So that's why I had to retake the exam. And it's a bit embarrassing to say this, this um, subject was numerical mathematics. Ah. And I had never thought about it, but these questions um, were all based on, for example, add an extremely large number up with a very small number and with very small I, I mean 10 to the minus blue so I thought I have to add them up before I can continue computing and the secret was now it sounds so silly drop the very small one uh, if you have to multiply uh, if you multiply by something very small it all becomes zero and so on so it's so obvious now after mm-hmm. I studied engineering maybe but at that time I didn't know so I had to retake the exam um, but when when my cousin l- learned that I hadn't passed, he's he's a he's a man. He told me which subject did you find difficult, and I told him well this one. He said, oh, it's easy. Drop the small numbers uh, in in uh, in additions and and so on. And so it was not as easy as that. But then I realized I should have prepared for this exam. It's not sufficient to to rely on what I've learned in secondary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think? Okay. This it was due to a lack of mentorship or proper guidance when you were uh, in school, or is something that you had to figure out yourself, and that was part of the the way well, things went. What I definitely learned is that all the boys' schools in the vicinity of where we lived had uh, additional maths classes on Wednesday afternoons with their math teacher to prepare for this exam, mm-hmm. and and. I wish I'd known about it or I had had it too. I mean, they were probably much, much smarter than I was, but I didn't, I, I didn't know what I was expected to, uh, to know. But uh, by retaking the exam, uh, I could pass and start the, uh, the program. Right. And was it a shock for you uh, 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 when you joined university other than uh, observing that there are other students that are really, really smart, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the level of the classes or the way, you know, things were organized, did that have any sort of impact on you or you uh, didn't have a very tough transition from school to university? I, I think it was, a, it was a very tough transition indeed. Um, yeah, I, I think I remember after one day, um, the, the professor said, we will repeat a little bit what, what you saw in secondary school. 
but one day was enough to have to have all the physics, all the chemistry, and all the maths I ever heard of. So it was it was relatively fast uh, um, for me, but I I quite enjoyed it. So eventually, you had to pick an emphasis uh, for your engineering degree. Uh, mm -hmm. Which one did you select? I selected metals and materials science, or I think it's officially now metallurgy and materials science, and it it may sound a bit odd. But we had a very inspiring professor in, in second year, a very, very inspiring professor. So uh, he had, um, he was enthusing, he had nice examples from his uh, research. He explained everything very well. And, um, and I'm absolutely certain that this influenced me to choose the subject um, of metals and materials engineering. And I, I don't regret it at all. I think it was fantastic because we had an almost equal number of professors as students in this uh, department. It was definitely not the most famous uh, subject to study. We did fantastic things in the lab. We were allowed to use electron microscopes, all sorts of very um, expensive equipment. Um, and I also remember that we uh, we did many excursions when I was a student, many more, I think, than we offer now to our students. Mm -hmm. We uh, we visited the coal mines in Flanders before they closed. We climbed climbed down. We went down 800 meters. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We crawled for 300 meters. Bes um, so aside the miners who were still digging uh, coal, digging up coal. Mm. And then we came back to the lab by bus and the dirt was still in our eyes and ears. So uh, very fantastic uh, experience indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and how was the system back then? Uh, was it uh, a master's degree already? That N No, um, it was not called master's. I, I would call it master's now. So we had a, a completely different organization. We first had, had to study two years of math and pure sciences, after which we, um, we could choose an engineering subject. And these engineering subjects were still rather theoretical. They were not very practical. We, I, I still, I'm, I'm, I'm not that practical compared to the people in my lab now. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it was two years and three years. And the Bologna uh, uh, agreement in Europe, I don't know if you yeah, know Yes, so of it. course I'm familiar with yeah, so, so this uh, agreement made all the educational programs um, turn into bachelor masters, where we now have three years of bachelor, and then depending on the subject, uh, you choose uh, two master years usually. Mm -hmm. So you, you did masters? It's not called masters. I call it masters now. <laughs> but I mean, uh, were you involved it, it in Engineering. Ah, yeah. okay. But did you have to do any research to get uh, the degree? Yeah, 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 yeah. We we had to do a, a master thesis. It was not called master thesis, uh -huh. but it was called thesis. We had to to pass a thesis to do independent uh, research, supervised by uh, by professor and by mm -hmm. uh, uh, one assistant. Or, or um, so we had to do this. We had to uh, uh, choose a subject. So we were twenty three students when I was in the final year, and there were. 23 subjects and um, 
so I, I wasn't doing operational research then, but the, the, the person uh, responsible for the assignment called a professor of operational research to optimize this assignment. So we mm -hmm. all had to choose to give points to three subjects to three subjects of our choice. So you can imagine many people wanted to do the same subject yeah. and a few uh, subjects were left over. So they called in uh, uh, an operational research professor to, uh, to compute the best possible assignment. I guess it was biased. I, I'm sure that uh, those who were early on in the alphabet uh, uh, <laughs> had a better chance of getting their choice than the ones uh, in the end. But uh, yeah, it worked out. I got I got this my favorite subject, although my name begins with V. So um, mm -hmm. I I actually worked with this professor, with the inspiring professor. Uh, he was a, uh, I, I mean, he's still alive. He's a uh, um, uh, a composites uh, uh, expert, composites materials, mm -hmm. um, and uh, but he's retired now. Um, but uh, I worked with him to determine um, the the orientation distribution of fibers in uh, short fiber uh, polymer composites. Uh -huh. nice. yeah. Sounds fancy. <laughs> uh, uh, how did you type uh, your dissertation? Uh, we were talking about um, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, early that? 90s. Um, yeah, uh, I didn't do it on a typewriter, um, but we didn't have a computer in our student uh, homes. We didn't. We had some fancy computer-like typewriter at home, but I, I wasn't at home when I was a student. Definitely not during the week. So I went to the department to uh, to write parts. We we stored them on floppy disks. The parts we had written. It was a a nice experience. And I also had a good friend who lived uh, very near my uh, my place. She had a computer because she already graduated. She studied chemistry, so chemistry back then was four years, not five. And uh, so I, uh, I often used her computer, and she she actually typed some uh, parts from me. Uh, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable uh, how we did it uh, in those days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, did you have any contact with Oar at, at that moment uh, in time? Almost none, but when I was in the fourth year, I, um, I got a class, I think it was called Linear and Integer Programming or something, from uh, Dirk Katrisse, who was a very young professor uh, in those days. And he taught this course to the mechanical engineers and to the materials en engineers. I don't think he taught it to anyone else. I found it fantastic, whereas my fellow metals engineering students almost all hated it, I think. No, not hated, but they didn't like it. And I really loved it. I, I, I liked to, to model. I, I loved the exercises and so on. So, um, and then in, in the final year, I decided to take a subject on optimization, which was taught by a, a metals engineering professor. It was continuous optimization. I also liked it. Um, but that was all. I, I think the, the course on linear programming um, would be three ECTS credits 
uh, if you would have to mm -hmm. translate it to the current system. That's all I had. Mm -hmm. I, I had. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what did you do after earning your degree? Uh, did you work in the industry or uh, you continue with your studies? Well, I well, this professor who did continuous optimization had interesting uh, projects, so he announced them, but it um, it required enrolling in a PhD program, and at that time I didn't think I I was capable of doing it, and I also taught four years the same subjects. I thought I would get bored after a while, so, and, and but I was. I, I was interesting in doing interested in doing the research, but not in PhD. So then he decided to uh, to hire someone else. So if I had done it, I think my life would have been different uh, <laughs> now. But um, I decided to look for a job. I was interested in uh, in research. So I I was um, I was looking around a bit. And actually, this po uh, position with Professor Van den Houten then would start only in April after we graduated in July the year before. So I, I was still keeping it in the back of my mind that, as an option. But after a few short uh, interim periods in industry and also actually in, uh, in teaching, um, I, uh, I learned about a position in the Polytechnical School, you could say, mm -hmm. which was purely focused on research and they were looking for a metals and materials engineer. So I thought it was fantastic and uh, and I applied and I got it. Mm -hmm. And I started working on European proje projects regarding uh, recycling research, recycling, dismantling and so on. Mm -hmm. So you spent about six years from 91 to 97 working as a researcher at uh, KU Leuven yes. before officially yeah. starting your PhD. Um, that's right. So uh, we did all sorts of projects together with industry. Um, and uh, at some point, Flanders decided that it was not allowed for people with an engineering degree to, um, to teach or become a professor at these polytechnics unless they had a PhD. This was really not my ambition to, to, to become a lecturer or so, but there were many others who were lecturing at these polytechnics without a PhD degree. So actually only the scientists, the pure scientists, math, chemistry, and so on, physics, they required a PhD. Engineers didn't require a PhD. We had studied one year longer. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't really know why not, but suddenly it became necessary. And uh, then uh, the director of our polytechnic, uh, I guess he was searching for people who wanted to join uh, a PhD program. And given that I was doing research already, um, I kind of said yes to it. So, uh, and, uh, and I, I was brought into, um, um, into touch with a professor from the University of Kent who was in operations research. Uh, engineering uh, operations research, but I had uh, a professor on my campus, mathematician Patrick de Kosmaker. You may want to interview him at some point mm -hmm. as well. Um, he was interested in everything, and uh, I believe he didn't know about OR when we started solving vehicle routing problems, container uh, relocation problems in uh, the port of Antwerp. 
and then at some point nurse rostering too and uh, so I was into these subjects already without a good scientific background and then I got enrolled in a PhD program and I had to learn it all. Mm -hmm. um, right, so during, this, uh, during those uh, six years, you did not care about writing papers and no, things like that? No, at all, not at all, no, <laughs> we were, we, yeah, I think we, we only cared about making algorithms work, so we were implementing algorithms mm -hmm. mostly in C and C++. Uh, uh, yeah. at that time but the way and you mm, but the way you you got involved uh, in a formal or project was kind of by accident like it was yes. not something that was uh, uh, really oh. you know expected it's it was uh, through it was a, an accident. unusual path it was by accident indeed because I I, I was working on uh, projects for metals and materials engineers and uh, a colleague of mine um, was working on a project um, for the distribution of um, drugs to uh, to pharmacies and so on. And I thought, oh, this is nice. I I, I was uh, looking at her work from time to time, and suddenly the company, the software company for which uh, she was working, came back with a fascinating problem. But she. She was ill or she didn't like it. And then I asked Patrick Gosmaker, would you mind if I joined the meeting? Because I recognized some of these modeling elements from the fourth year. And he said, oh, oh well, yes. And and I, I liked it so much that I began solving uh, the problem. It, uh, it was in very close cooperation with the company. And uh, so I, I guess I developed uh, a personnel rostering solver. Um, uh, which was, yeah, so it was being implemented in hospitals almost immediately after I'd written it. So, wow. it was, and, mm -hmm. uh, continuously. So, so I received um, requests from hospitals more or less every day. I had to do patches and uh, so right. yeah, I was more of a software developer than ah. a researcher. But your part was most about uh modeling or using solvers or you had to develop your own heuristics well uh it's not that easy as this so i recognized optimization problems discrete optimization problems from the institute programming courses so i thought okay that's how to do it formulate them mathematically with linear equations uh, so i knew how to do this then i was searching for a solver i found ibm solver I thought, okay, I will feed my program to IBM Solver. I had never learned or did not remember the complexity uh, problems. Um, so I was immediately confronted with uh, the immense complexity of the problem. So even if I reduced it to one week schedules, IBM Solver couldn't do it. I tried a bit of constraint programming, didn't scale. Um, and then uh, Patrick the Kostmaker came with the idea of developing heuristics because he was attending conferences every now and then. Um, so we started developing heuristics and they worked far better than any mathematical model. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about the experience of attending your first international conferences. Oh, I was so nervous when I uh, attended conferences. I uh, so 
these were abstract conferences. My first two conferences were Euro uh, conferences, and uh, so we only had to submit an abstract. Uh, I think all the abstracts were accepted. And I was really nervous to present my work. So during the first conference, um, okay, I, I think I was so nervous that I couldn't remember what the people in my session talked about. But in my second conference, which was Euro in Barcelona, um, I had a talk in a timetabling stream organized by Edmund Burke. And it was a relatively small room and it was nice and and cozy and a very friendly environment. And, um, and after my talk, Edmund Burke said, um, okay, I like what you're doing. We don't do this in Nottingham. Wouldn't you mind to come over? And I thought, whoa, how nice. So I went back home and Patrick de Kosmaker said, very good idea. So I kind of left the work with the company behind to, uh, to uh, visit the University of Nottingham and to do proper research. That's ah. how it felt. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Very, very nice. Uh, so uh, before we continue with your uh, journey to England, uh, I think you have a nice anecdote involving uh, another Belgium legend in, in our field uh, in, in some conference in Barcelona too. Oh, okay. Again, Barcelona. Yes, yes, yes. So many, many years after this first Barcelona experience, um, uh, I attended iForce in uh, in Barcelona again. I can't remember uh, the exact year now. Never mind. And uh, at when I left Belgium, uh, I well, the queues at the airport were incredible so i was a bit frightened that i would miss my flights but then i spotted martin labby uh, from uh, i spotted martin labby also in the queue and uh, so we thought okay if one is late we will we will both miss our flight but we didn't miss our flights but upon uh, so it was summer some uh, euro conferences are always in summer upon arrival in uh, in valencia we were the only two with Missing luggage, Martin mm -hmm. and I. So we waited for a bit. Yeah, we had some fun. Yeah, what to do about it? Mm -hmm. And then I remember that the next days I was looking at Martin to see if she was still wearing the same T-shirt, <laughs> and that she was looking at me. And it, I think, it took two days before our uh, suitcase uh, arrived. So we had to wash clothes in the, <laughs> in the hotel uh, every night. Ah, okay, this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, I know, I know. I had a similar yeah. experience when I, I went to Peru and uh, to attend a Clio conference, and then later on I went to Machu Picchu, Cusco, and all of that. I spent the entire trip without my my luggage. <laughs> I just yeah. had the knapsack, and I had to you know buy clothes and and yeah, solve yeah. later the, the with the, the airline yeah. company. But I can see how stressful it can be. Yeah, yeah, and nice. Well, it wasn't it. I mean, Martinez is a very nice and warm person. So due to the fact that we were both in this situation, I, I guess we made fun of it. It was really nice. And yeah. Martin is kind of a role model for many of us. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lovely person. Yeah. And I should thank her for introducing us to. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very nice of her. Uh, uh, you, you spent a period as a visiting researcher in England. Uh, do you think that visit was a turning point in your career uh, as a researcher? I believe so. Yes, I, I do believe so. 
Um, because at uh, the institute where I was working, we were doing demand-driven, very practical uh, research, but we didn't care at all about publishing and so on. So these conferences were interesting to me um, to become familiar with uh, this nice sites of uh, science where people meet each other, talk about publications and so on. But um, so I, I remember when I arrived in England, I think, so I made a plan, a research plan for uh, the next months, which I would propose to Edmund Burke um, upon arrival. And I told him, look, I would like to do this. I would like to do this, 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 this. And Edmund said, mm, yeah, mm, mm, interesting, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Let's first write it all up. Let's write up what you have done. And well, it, I think I was a bit disappointed to write it up instead of doing nice new things. But this was a game changer for me. So he, he forced me instead of doing the plan to make a plan for writing up all the things I had done, all the recent results I uh, had obtained. University of Nottingham had a very good library then. It was before the time of electronic libraries. Uh, I mean, we, we could find papers, but then we had to ask uh, the, the, the editor to, to send copies and so on. So it was a bit difficult. So for me, this was really nice to, to have access to this library. And uh, so I basically wrote papers while I was there. Uh, papers about the work I had been doing the years before. Right. Uh, yeah. So this really changed, uh, yeah, changed a lot. Mm -hmm. So yeah. while working on nurse uh, rostering problems, did you have the chance to visit hospitals to acquire more practical insights? Oh, yes. So this was actually an advantage of working with a software company. Uh, because from time to time, they would take me along to hospitals to help convincing the hospitals that uh, our software would make a difference for them. And then they sometimes wanted me to, to quickly give feedback uh, regarding the possibility to implement constraints and so on. And uh, so I had the opportunity to talk to uh, many hospital planners, uh, uh, human resources managers in hospitals, head nurses who were doing the research. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I had this because I feel uh, I still rely on this knowledge I acquired there. And this knowledge is not something you could find or I could find in books. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, this Absolutely. was really important for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you said you were a shy kid. Uh, but after meeting you in person last year, I did not find you shy at all. Uh, when did that change? Um, it, I think it changed after my first conferences. So these, conf these first Euro conferences were still not very comfortable for me. I was nervous and shy. And um, perhaps the teaching made a difference. So um, Did you become assistant professor right away when you finished your PhD? By the way, yeah, yeah, uh, less than one year later. Ah, okay. Yeah. And yeah, teaching yeah. came easy to you, or it took a while for you to get yeah, used? No, to oh the no, no, no. It. Uh, I think I I spent uh, far more time preparing than um, than anyone else would do. But the difficulty is that I was teaching to um, student. I was teaching students uh, in electronics ICT, and I had 
no ICT background at all. So algorithms and, uh, and programming subjects, artificial intelligence, I all had to learn it mm -hmm. after I obtained. I think it's nice my... to clarify what is ICT for the listeners. Ah, um, inform information and communication technology. I never, never did communication uh, uh, technology, but uh, yeah, we were teaching students in uh, information technology. Mm -hmm. So the teaching yeah. experience helped you also to, to become... I think it helped a lot right. to, to get rid of my shyness. Mm, yes. Right. Uh, uh, I know you kept working on nurse uh, rostering problems uh, after you finished your PhD. And, mm -hmm. and, you and I know that you made an extensive contribution in this class of problems. Could you name some of them? Um, well, I, I'm proud of the solver. Uh, we made the nurse rostering solver, so the, the, the course software. So the one I developed um, was in, in C, semi-C++. Um, and then after I graduated, I'm, I, uh, I uh, wrote some research proposals to continue because I had many ideas to, to go further in this domain and I was quite lucky to be able to attract funding so I uh, I could afford paying additional PhD students to continue working on it so and I believe we now have uh, a, a yeah, very general solver which is used by companies in 70% of the Belgian hospitals, 100% wow. of the Luxembourg hospitals. Well done. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I'm, I'm proud of this, but also, I mean, some of the things we develop, some of the, the, the models, constraints, objectives, and so on, are relatively different from what you could find in papers before. The, yeah, and um, we often struggled to, um, to get things published uh, if they differed from here we have a case and here we have some algorithm some heuristic and that's how we solve it so each time we tried to do something different like for example um, showing how important it is to consider the continuous or the, the rolling horizon in nursing sync problems um, I mean it's it's too trivial to talk about it, mm -hmm. but all the initial instances had no previous day. Mm -hmm. So how can you decide whether you put a nurse in the early or in the night shift if you have no clue what, what the nurse had been doing before? Okay, this mm -hmm. sounds a bit silly, but the problem was that these instances required to modify our solver, whereas we thought our solver is meant to do the real Thing. So we, we found it difficult to justify why it was necessary to have a continuous horizon. Um, yeah, we uh, toge together with Patrick, um, uh, I published uh, some categorization of nurse rostering problems where we identified specific objectives and constraints. But we should continue working on it because we didn't say anything about complexity or solvability. It was just a way of trying to direct people to the right publications to sites uh, because we can say nurse rostering and the problems are so different that um, you, they shouldn't be called the same and we tried to do this so um, yeah, yeah like to organize the, the, the yes the literature in a way yeah, yeah. yeah. um 
I know you've done also some some uh, contributions uh, regarding robust scheduling. Uh, yeah. Could you talk yeah. a bit more about uh, that? Yeah, that was a, a very nice experience, actually, with a Brazilian PhD student uh, whom I met at a Brazilian workshop, um, and he was he was developing. Um, rostering software for physicians in a very large hospital. I can't remember the name of the hospital, but it was in Rio Grande do Sul. Yeah, Rio Grande do Sul is yeah. the state. Yeah, you're talking about yeah, Tony, yeah. probably, right? Tony Wickert, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So we met him there. His supervisor, uh, Luciana Boriol, said, well, can he come over? It would <laughs> be nice for him. And Peter Smet, my postdoc, who is also working on uh, nurse rostering, and I said, well, yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we had a fantastic collaboration with uh, with Tony Wickert. So, yeah, it's unbelievable. He's um, he's not very outspoken, but each time we had ideas, and I think Peter and I have many more ideas than anyone could ever <laughs> solve. So, so we pushed many of our ideas onto Tony, and Tony calmly developed these ideas. Came to our room with tables full of results. When we said, oh, this is an odd result, Tony said, yes, I thought the same. I analyzed it. So it was a really nice experience. And the robust rostering made us feel we need to go, go further on this subject. Because unlike in scheduling, where you could say, OK, we have machines, we will build in some redundancy, some um, uh, buffer time or redundant machines. You, you cannot really do this with people. So what Tony did was uh, identifying which skills could replace other skills. But then you have to be careful because if somebody could replace a new colleague at some day, you have to be careful that this person didn't do night work the day before. So he, he, he developed a robustness metric, which we employed in an objective to arrive at robust trust. This was only one attempt. We really intend to go further on this subject. Mm -hmm. Very nice cooperation. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what about other research interests? I know you, you like to collaborate with companies and, and you, you like to study problems that come from the industry, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's actually what my current faculty is encouraging. So Faculty of Engineering Technology. So we are... Um, training engineering students uh, who, who, who need very practical skills. So, uh, so we talk a lot to companies and we try to cooperate with them uh, for research. So we, we have port operators, uh, software developers who do vehicle routing. Um, my colleague, Tony Wouters, uh, does cutting and packing with a large number of, uh, of companies. Um, Nice, nice. Um, it seems that you also became interested in devising heuristic dual bounds for combinatorial optimization problems. Uh, could you comment on this, please? Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really know how to call them, so we call them heuristic uh, uh, dual bounds. So that was actually work we did with another PhD student from, uh, from Brazil, Tulio Toffolo. Uh -huh. um, My great friend. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, 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 my great friend too. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a very talented researcher and a nice person. Yeah. So um, um, we 
we um, we wanted to uh, to develop uh, heuristic decomposition approaches, um, which are somewhat similar to the mathematical uh, decomposition approaches, but we wanted to use human knowledge on how to how to cut problems, how to separate subproblems from others, solve these subproblems, you use them as bounds. But again, if the subproblems are too complicated, we thought, okay, let's solve them or let's try to find solution with the heuristic and then use this solution to kind of cut off some parts of the search space. So uh, uh, that was nice research we did with Tulio. Tulio was a very productive researcher, very uh, very good at writing papers, uh, a very good software uh, developer as well. And, uh, and I believe we made an important uh, contribution there, which we are still using. So we are still using the ideas uh, he developed uh, in current uh, projects. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Tulio. I mean, he's super talented <laughs> in, in many ways, right? And also, he's yeah, a, yeah, right. I like to, to, to say that he's a true gentleman too, right? Yeah. Really, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. has, has a posture yeah. and is a very, very diligent, yeah. responsible, caring person. Yeah. Very, very nice guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's true. And uh, he, he helped everybody else in the lab. So if you look at his publications, you, you will see that he has cooperated with everybody who was in the lab during the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one of your contributions that I like the most is the slack induction by string removals algorithm, also known as scissors, uh, for vehicle routing problems. Uh, could you explain more or less the idea of the algorithm for those who are not familiar with the method and also the story behind the development of the heuristic? Okay, I'm glad you, you want to talk about this heuristic because I'm, I'm indeed very proud of it. By the way, it was not me who developed it. It was Jan Christians, former PhD student, uh, very talented programmer, very uh, talented mathematically. So um, I actually hired Jan before he had a, a master uh, degree. Uh, I, uh, I uh, had taught some courses to him and he, he surprised me so much that I wanted to work with him. Um, and um, so, okay, he started working on problems which were brought to us by industry, uh, among which a vehicle routing problem. So the, the company was uh, relying on mathematical solvers and they failed to scale the problems up. And uh, they visited us and we said, okay, we think we can do this. And Jan was so far, so uh, he impressed them a lot. Uh, the, the <laughs> the people we worked with decided to set up their own company uh, <laughs> with which we did um, a, a, a PhD grant which was largely supported by the Flemish government. So Jan did this PhD grant. Uh, he, uh, he solved all sorts of practical problems for the company. Um, but he, so he was working so fast that he did not really uh, make progress scientifically because he was solving cases. Uh, and, and after a while, we decided to let him do pure research because the company uh, was working with the solver already. And then I, I'm, I'm really proud of what he did. He analyzed what was really needed to do, uh, to do good um, vehicle routing local search heuristics. 
and instead of doing random swaps and and uh, inserts and so on, what we could find in many other papers, instead of doing large neighborhood search uh, algorithms, which also uh, are very good, very good publications, very good performance, he really analyzed what go what was going on in the solution, and he decided to um, free some slack capacity um, in, uh, in uh, for example, capacitated vehicle routing problem. Uh, he freed capacity, but he also freed uh, what we call spatial slack. So he would remove assignments within the same geographical region, mm -hmm. hoping that a reassignment of these visits would be better than what was done before. And this, I, I believe it's very smart and it's so simple to explain. Yes. And it works nicely. Um, so he, uh, he, he spent some time on it, uh, targeted some uh, benchmark instances, those by Uchoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a co-author of that. Uh, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. And, uh, and his algorithm performed really well, so we decided to write it up. Uh, we were not allowed to share the code, regrettably. Um, due to the, the cooperation with the company. I would have wanted to share the code because Jan was a very good programmer, beautiful code, just mm -hmm. like Tulio's. Mm -hmm. And uh, But then uh, we, we submitted a paper to transportation science and, uh, well, the reviewers didn't like the title, so they suggested to, to change the title. Now I'm happy with the title. I think scissors reflect some cutting and it's <laughs> nice. But they said, okay, uh, it, we see that it works, but you should also apply your algorithm to, and then, yeah, 20 other problems, <laughs> <laughs> like pickup and delivery, um, vehicle routing with time windows. He had a vehicle routing with time windows uh, algorithm, so but he, he had to, to run all the experiments and all these uh, classes of instances, but in the end, I'm glad uh, yeah. we spent the time to uh, update the paper because it got finally accepted. For the record, the that was not the reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, we ended up, uh, uh, you ended up solving uh, problems that we did in the past. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I we saw... compared against yes, your yeah. algorithm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was yeah, very which great. was very good, by the way. Yeah, ah, yeah. So it's nice to know the story behind uh, the scissors. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. Uh, it's a relatively simple idea, but yet uh, very effective and uh, uh, also very uh, doable to reproduce it, which I think is a very important aspect of the method. I I'm glad you say so, because I would have preferred to share the codes, but we we regularly receive emails from people who are trying to reproduce it and I thought it was quite clear but there are a few ambiguities in the paper so we interact in, um, with with uh, with these people but I, I learned that students have managed to re-implement the, the yes. local search operator so it's yeah, yeah. That's, uh, really nice right yeah yeah I was involved in a project that was led by Thibaut Vidal uh, with his students mm -hmm. Uh, and they mm -hmm. were trying to reproduce many of the state-of-the-art uh, CVRP heuristics, including scissors. And uh, the, the, the students, they succeeded. And it was actually the one who performed the best uh, at the time, even outperforming the one by Thibault. <laughs> I mean, the, the implementation. Okay. Yeah, so it was, it was fun. Yeah. yeah uh, and yeah. it was actually yeah. the first time we met uh, online uh, when the students were presenting 
their uh, yeah, uh, results. And in, indeed, but it was, uh, yeah, it was in a in a very special video setting, not as yes, 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 yeah, the right, yeah. There was a lot going on at the same time, so yeah. Mm -hmm, we, mm -hmm. uh, so um, when you're solving complex real life problems full of intricate details, and you want to write a paper out of it, how do you proceed? <sighs> yeah, yeah. This is a very difficult question. Um, first of all, because I don't think all the real world problems we solve uh, deserve publication. I don't think so. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit um, against publications in the style. I have done something, so please accept my paper. So what, but when we think it's important enough to share some findings, we we often simplify the problem a bit so that it becomes digestible for the readers. Um, if, if, if it requires five, six pages of, uh, pages of mathematical equations be before you can uh, describe the problem uh, uh, precisely, then I think many readers will not be interested anymore in looking at what exactly makes uh, the heuristic uh, performing well or uh, I'm, I'm always most proud of simplifications, uh, for example. Sometimes we drop constraints when we do uh, real-world research. Um, companies don't like it, but if you can show in the end that you never violate them, mm -hmm. it's sometimes uh, enough to convince them. And these are the findings I like to publish in the papers, but not the, well, we have done it in the past, but not the full complexity with all the Unpleasant details nobody wants to read. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. I yeah. I also find it a um, tedious job to to review papers, uh, yeah, which requires so much work to understand all the details. Uh, I yeah. yeah but I this is a very a very uh, subjective um, vision on. No, that's perfectly uh, yeah. understandable. Yeah, and mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, we were talking about meta heuristics uh, or heuristics uh, uh, just now. Uh, how do you see their progress since the 80s and 90s? Mm. Yeah, that's a, a nice question again. So I, I, I sometimes wonder whether there is really progress. So heuristics, meta heuristics, lo local search based heuristics uh, are fantastic because I believe you can solve any combinatorial optimization problem of some size. I'm, I'm not talking about solving optimally, but we can do in a few days um, a solution that largely outperforms what the companies have. So that's the advantage of meta heuristics of, and local search heuristics. But in my opinion, I'm a bit worried that uh, we have become lazy in developing local search heuristics and meta heuristics. So you will find some papers saying, okay, here's a nice problem, and we have solved it using taboo search, and we do insert and swap. And here is the table of our results. And I'm sorry, you cannot compare it because nobody else uh, understands this problem, but taboo search works. And then sometimes they do another algorithm iterated local search, whatever you want, and they say, ah, iterated local search outperforms double search, or vice versa, doesn't matter. 
And I'm worried that these papers are not really sharing what is important. And what I find missing in many papers is how the solution is represented. Did, they, did the authors employ specific data structures? Do these data structures help to, to, uh, to speed up um, evaluation, to, to, uh, to be efficient in modifying solutions and so We don't read this. And consequently, when somebody tries to implement such a paper, if you don't explain it, people will struggle. And I'm guilty. I, so I have many publications in which we did not think about sharing this knowledge because this is implementation knowledge. And now, as I'm getting older, I realize that's what we have to share and not the acceptance mechanism or, um, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit controversial what I'm saying. No, no, it's, uh, I understand too. Yeah. Uh, I, I had uh, a mentor also called Marconi Jamilson Freitas Souza. He's, uh, he was the also supervisor of Tulio uh, in the in yeah, Brazil. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. yeah, so he was the guy who taught me uh, the importance of giving implementation details for other people to reproduce it. And later on, I also, uh, you know, working with Thibault and other, and other guys, uh, 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 getting uh, more uh, aware of the importance of doing efficient local search and uh, trying to, you know, work on the complexity, uh, also do smart ways of uh, performing the search without, without um, you know, uh, having high uh, CPU times and things like that. Uh, and these mm -hmm. contributions are more fundamental in a way that you can reuse that in a other meta heuristic framework. Uh, e eventually, you have to choose one meta heuristic to test uh, the, mm -hmm. those ideas. But I, I think even if you are forced to use one of them, uh, table search or ILS or um, large neighborhood search, if the key ideas are properly introduced uh, and they're, they're, they tend to be more general and, in, in, and also mm -hmm. result in more impact and relevance. Uh, over the years, uh, I think it's uh, so. I, completely I couldn't agree, with agree you. more. I, I I completely agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so changing topics a little bit. Uh, you were the chair of the program committee of Euro 2018 in Valencia. Um, how yeah. was the experience? And do you have any anecdotes to share regarding uh, this position? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Many more than, than you want to hear. So first of all, let me be clear. I didn't want to do it. I said no to Ramon Alvarez Valdez and Ruben Ruiz, who are very good friends. But I said no many times until, well, and then they decided to visit my group in Ghent. They both came and I guess, uh, well, they made me say yes at that time. And I trusted they would do a lot of work uh, on, on the organization as one. I trust them completely. They are very hard workers, very, very nice people. Uh, but I didn't know what I was beginning at. It was, yeah, I, I was really frightened that I would uh, fail. Mm. But then, well, the, the, the biggest difficulty of organizing such a conference is to deal with all the emails when the conference is about to begin. This, Unbelievable. And these emails have nothing to do with science or with uh, operational research. Uh, believe me, yeah, like for example, we received questions like, um, can I bring my dog to the conference? 
Could you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, really. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, these were easy to answer. Could you, could you find me a room with hot water? I'm not joking. These were the questions we received. So, yeah, after having received a few of them, I passed all these questions on to Ramon and Ruben. Uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah. I was not prepared for uh, for answering such questions. So. This is so good. I mean, I know it's <laughs> awkward, but it's very funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 unbelievable. Of course, there were serious questions. Uh, we felt very sorry for people who did manage to get their visa in time. Uh, so this also happens, and uh, and living in a country with almost no restrictions, it it was really hard for me to see how people who who uh, had organized their trip in time um, could not attend due to visa mm -hmm. restrictions or late vi visa um, arrivals. Um, yeah, so th these are not as funny as the dog and the yeah, yeah, no, this stuff, but... Uh, mm. Yeah, uh, so uh, I, I have a question that originally uh, came from my wife uh, because she also met you and she saw that you were super active and fun and she loved hanging out with you. But then she asked me, uh, I wonder uh, how Hred managed maternity and work, uh, especially when her kids were small. Ah, okay. How? Yeah, it's a, it's an, a nice question. I, I think I've been relatively lucky. So when the eldest was born, um, I continued working from home. I, I, we didn't have video conferences with with, uh, with the colleagues yet, but each time she was sleeping, I worked in a rather relaxed manner. It was like being on a sabbatical, I think, fully focused uh, on research. Uh, but then when the second one was born, uh, it was a bit harder. And uh, uh, yeah, be, because I had to to take the second one along to pick the, the eldest from uh, school, from kindergarten and so on. But um, actually, when they were very little, it was almost easier than a couple of years ago, because uh, we put them in bed at seven o'clock or so. And then I, I could uh, resume my work and, and continue. That was nice. Yeah. Yeah, I recall some, some moments which made me really feel horrible when I was picking them up from school and I saw one of them was ill, red. <laughs> and then I thought, oh my God, I have so much work and I will have to go to the doctor. How will I manage? Um, my husband was working uh, late evenings very often. And uh, so I remember that I thought, I am a bad mother <laughs> because I think my child should not, should not be ill now. But. Um, uh, well, I, I, well, we had we had some help from the grandparents from time to time. I I used to call my parents. You have anything to do tomorrow morning? Why? Well, I think one of them is a bit. And then my parents said, "Don't worry, we will we will come." So mm -hmm. that was comfortable. Um, but I, see. I I can highly recommend children. <laughs> okay. Uh so it seems that uh, your daughter is sitting next to you. Uh, so, yeah, are... so maybe I can ask her directly whether you are a good mom or if you have been a good mom. <laughs> oh, she's she's smiling. Yeah. Here, Clara. 
So, how are you? Yeah. Tell me about your mom. <laughs> well, um, she is a great mom. Uh -huh. oh. Yes, this was unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And does, I mean, yeah. does, does she give you a lot of support or she, she's usually working? So, tell um, me more about that. Yes, she enjoys helping me with school and stuff because, yes. Especially the math and such things. She's really interested in all the stuff we learn at school and she always wants to help. So that's really nice. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, for, it's a for... bit flattered, Anna. <laughs> it's flattered because you asked if she always working and she answered to uh, another question yeah i guess i'm i'm working a lot but uh, yeah no that's that's okay perfectly uh understandable uh so <clears throat> in some countries like belgium uh they are trying to decrease the gender imbalance in juries committees and so on on the one hand this seems to be a nice initiative but on the other hand it can add a lot of extra work right uh yes especially in engineering faculties where the number of uh female stuff is very low and uh, I can testify and many of my uh, female colleagues uh, will join me in there that we have uh, a far larger amount of admin duties committee work uh, than average men do. I, I believe it's true. Maybe it's a perception, but I believe it's true. Be because uh, so naturally we would have a very high gender imbalance um, but by forcing each committee to have at least one or two female members or by by uh, forcing that not more than um, two-thirds should be from the same uh, gender the uh, yeah the underrepresentative group uh, ha yeah has to do a bit more that's my impression. I'm not sure if it is really objective, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, in a way, it's a progress, right? Uh, to to try to you know uh, take some measures to uh, decrease the, the imbalance. But then on the other hand, I understand. As I said, uh, it's yeah, uh, it yeah, can be yeah. time consuming for for the those who are not uh, you know part of the majority. <laughs> yes. So I I am not against absolutely not against um, and I, I also think that it gives women the opportunity to learn about these um, uh, management duties committees which um, uh, give advice to to the, the academic board and so on so it's it's really a good opportunity to learn about it because I think many of us would maybe not volunteer for such jobs maybe not so it's a good opportunity um, but yeah let me give you another anecdote uh, so I'm, I'm chairing the advisory committee uh, of my faculty um, uh, so we are uh, reading applications selecting people for an interview interviewing them and so on for the new professorships and uh, it's a time-consuming job. We, call, we have many open positions uh, on the many campuses in our faculty. And uh, so for each position, uh, the university uh, appoints a search committee. 
So the faculty has to propose a number of people in the search committee. If there's no woman, uh, the, the group will add a woman. And if there's a woman, they will swap order and make the woman chairing the committee. And I understand the reason there, there's a... So international research seems to have shown that women are more likely to think that the job could be for them if a woman is inviting them to apply. But at some point, all these women were completely fed up with being appointed chair of a committee uh, without ever having been asked or uh, informed about it. And they are relaxing the rules now a little bit, uh. which is okay. So <laughs> it's it's difficult to to choose a position in, in here. I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I haven't quite made my mind mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. about whether I like it or not. Mm -hmm. but, uh, okay. Yeah. So, Gret, uh, thank you so much for your time. I had, uh, um, I mean, it was fantastic to talk to you and to learn more about your life uh, and your research work. So, uh, it was lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anand. Uh, see you, hopefully, in Belgium when you visit us again. Or in Brazil, uh, when you come uh, to this side uh, one more time. I know you already visited Brazil, but now it's time to maybe uh, go up north and uh, come to, to our town, João Pessoa. So, of course, you're okay, most welcome yeah. to come. I, I may consider it. That uh -huh. would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so keep in touch, Kret, uh, uh, and uh, let's, let's meet uh, uh, one of these days. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Ciao. Good, good night or good morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good night. Ciao.